If you have your Bible today, turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. We're looking at the son, at the, the whole series on the Son of God. Who is the Son of God? And how does his life impact us? The life of Jesus Christ in us. As Jesus was nearing uh, the end of his 33 years here, as he's end, ending his ministry, he said some things that were powerful. And there's a, a portion called what, what we like to call the high priestly prayer it's what I call the real Lord's Prayer because uh, it, it's not the one that we know. He gave us a model prayer, but this is the prayer that the Lord prays for us as he's getting ready to go back. And there's one thing that, that keeps coming up, and it's all about unity, the power of unity. How powerful is it when people work together? Yesterday we had 90 kids and their families here for Upward. We had a ton of kids here. Uh, when, I, when I came by, I couldn't believe how many people were in the parking lot. When I came in, I couldn't believe how many kids were playing basketball. And I couldn't believe how many coaches and people it takes to put that on. If you helped with Upward yesterday, would you stand up? If you were in the kitchen, if you were a coach, if you were helping out, stand up. I just want the church to see what happened yesterday. When we come together, it's amazing how powerful it can be when we have unity. And the, it can be powerfully good and it can be powerfully bad. In, in the book of Genesis, there's a story, it's a true story, it's a historical rendering of what happened when the people got together for the wrong reasons. It was called the Tower of Babel. They began to build this, this ziggurat, they began to build this worship thing. They were going to build their way to heaven and they were going to try to get their own way to heaven. By the way, that's what every religion is, man trying to get their way to heaven. Christianity is God reaching down to us. Total difference. And they were trying to build their way up, and, the, and it says in Genesis eleven six, the Lord said, if, if as one people seeking, uh, speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. And so God confused their language, and that's where we have all the different languages that started when the people got together for the wrong reason. And we've seen over, over a period of history when England got together and, and they had this interesting fellow who was the politician, Winston Churchill, getting on the radio and, and giving addresses uh, of people who were outmanned and outgunned and in every way should have lost the war. England stayed in there when they, got, when they came together as one. And the Lord calls us as his body, as the church, to be unified. And he defines and he demonstrates unity in, in a remarkable way right as he's getting ready to go to the cross. And, and of all the things he could have been thinking about, I think it's remarkable that unity is the one thing that's on his heart and on his mind. Look at what it says in Luke eleven twenty three, because Jesus all the way through his ministry talks about how important it is to be as one. And Jesus is saying in, in Luke eleven twenty three, he who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters. And the Lord says, have you heard the clarion call? Will you come to me? Will you be a part of what I'm doing? What would happen if we fulfilled Jesus' last prayer for us? What would happen as a church, not just Crosspoint, but around the world, in Senegal and in Haiti and, and in America and in all of the other countries, the, the 26 missionaries that we have literally around the world, what if in every place where they were, we began to see the unity of Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to look and see what would happen if we fulfilled his prayer. Look at John chapter 17. 
And we're going to answer this question, how did Jesus strive? How did he strive for unity? In John chapter 17, we're going to pick it up in the middle in verse 13. It says this, Jesus is praying, I'm coming to you now. He's speaking to the Father, I'm coming to you now. But I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they, that's the disciples, those that are there, that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. He's worried still about the joy of the disciples. Look at verse 14. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Now look at this, verse 17. Sanctify them. How? Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, for them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who's that? Who's he, who's he praying for? Who was Jesus praying for? Us, you and me. I pray all for those I also I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one father just as you are in me and I am in you. So there's the picture of the unity of the father the son the holy spirit all as one. May they also be in us so the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one just or as we are one. He's giving, again, a comparison. Look at verse 22, or verse 23. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Such powerful words. We could spend weeks on this. I want to just look at three things very briefly on how Jesus was striving for unity and how he was trying to point it out and define it and demonstrate it. And here's the first one. Jesus demonstrated how diversity could enhance, enhance unity. Now, this sounds like it's just the opposite of what we're talking about. Jesus has around him the disciples, and as he's praying, he's surrounded by these guys he spent three years with. And usually division disrupts every area of our life. If we're divided, if there's diversity, if, if there's something different about us, different about us. What, diverse, what is there that causes division today among us? It could be ethnicity. It could be multiculturalism. Multi, uh, it, it could be uh, generational differences. You ever hear somebody say, well, in my generation, we didn't do it that way. Usually it's me saying that. But anyway, there can be gender tension. Uh, you know, the, the male and the female and how we differ on that. Political polarization. You know, I'm, on this, I'm for this party. I'm for this party. I believe in this. I don't like that. And, and the political polarization. Philosophy. Just our philosophy of life. Our methods. How we do things. I'll never forget, I was taught how to iron by my left-handed mother, and I ironed backwards. I mean, I iron with my right hand, but I iron like I'm left-handed. It's just backwards, and it drives my mother-in-law nuts. In fact, I just iron in front of her just to do that. But, but Jesus chose this odd group. 
look at Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Jesus went up to a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. Did you notice he didn't take volunteers? He called to himself those he wanted, and they came to him. Who were the 12 disciples? Uh, if you have a pen, write this down. Here's an address for you, okay? 5252 Mab, M-A-B, and then the, the initials for street, S-T. 52 Mab Street. That's the 12 disciples. James, James, John, Jude, and Judas. There were two James. There was a Jude and a Judas. James, James, John, Jude, and Judas. That's the five. Two is Peter and Philip. Matthew, Andrew, Bartholomew, Simon, and Thomas. M-A-B-S-T. So it's James, James, John, Jude, Judas, Peter, Philip, Matthew, Andrew, Bartholomew, Simon, and Thomas. That's the 12 disciples. So you can't say you didn't learn anything today, okay? And he had these 12 guys. And let's talk about them for just a minute. Who was Peter? If you, if you thought of Peter, what did you normally think of? Speak first, think later. Just say it. If it comes to your mind, say it, and then you can think about the, the ramifications. His brother Andrew is very quiet. Other than Andrew coming and getting Peter, we don't hear a lot of what Andrew said. But if Peter's your brother, you don't get to talk a lot. And then there's James and John, the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee. They were fishermen, so we know that truth was not real high on their, you know, how big was a fish. Oh, it was that big. It was that. James and John, they were commercial fishermen, and they were known as the sons of thunder. Later on, John will be known for his ability to describe love in an incredible way in 1 John. But you have James and John. You have Thomas. Who's Thomas? Everybody wants to call him Doubting Thomas. I don't really like that. I would rather, if there's another character that you would maybe compare him to, it would be Eeyore. You know Eeyore from the little kids, Christopher Robin and and Winnie the Pooh and all? Eeyore? Jesus says at one time when Lazarus has died and he's going to go down and see him, he says, they say to him, you know, Jesus, if you go to see Lazarus, they're probably going to kill you. And Thomas says, well, let's go and die along with him. That's Thomas. He's, he's maybe a skeptic, but he's, he, he's an interesting part. Then you have Matthew. Matthew, also known as Levi, was the tax collector. He was a collaborator. He was a Jewish guy who collected taxes for Rome. He was hated by the other Jews. I mean, they hated tax collectors. IRS. Well, they, they hated tax collectors. We all hate tax collectors, let's face it. But this guy especially, he worked for the enemy because he was Jewish and he cheated along the way. That's the way that they were paid. They collected what Rome needed and then they just decided how much they needed to get paid on top of that. And so he worked for Rome. And then there's another one, Simon, not Peter, another Simon, Simon the Zealot. And that means he was a a part of the underground resistance, he was trying to overthrow Rome. So you have in the same group the guy who sold out to Rome and the guy who hated Rome. Don't you think they had some interesting dinners? And Matthew says, well, I don't think Rome was all that bad. And you can just see Simon getting ready to get the sword out. I mean, Jesus had these 12 guys that he lived with. Why did he do that? Because we need each other to balance our strengths and our weaknesses. Joseph Stoll, in in a little book that he wrote called Following Christ, says this, Think of the potential for division that is inherent simply in the diversity of gifts. 
Someone endowed with the gift of mercy finds it hard to deal with the prophetic gift that sees sin clearly and demands that people buck up, repent, or pack up and leave. The mercy person hurts with the fallen. The prophet is repelled by the seeming softness on sin that is reflected in the mercy giver. So leaders are often irritated with those who have gifts of administration. Administrators are into the process. They ask all the hard questions, and they can be viewed as obstructionists to the visionary whose primary concern is the outcome. So you have the leaders who say, here's the vision, and the administrators who say, how are you going to get there? And you have the prophet who says, this is a horrible sin, and the mercy person says, but we need to love the sinner. And God's called all of us into the same family. Do you understand that? And instead of diversity making us weak, it makes us strong. Because when that prophet is so strong on sin, you have the mercy person come alongside and love that person into the kingdom. And when you have that visionary that has the vision of what God wants them to do, you have that administrator that comes along and says, well, if we do these 17 things, we can get there. Division and diversity should make us stronger if we will just come to the Lord. I can, I, the problem is, is we focus on preferences more than principles. It's what you like. You want to be around people who like what you like. I can prove that we like preferences. Okay, we're going to do a little poll here. How many of you like wheat toast? Raise your hand if you like wheat toast. How many of you like white toast? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you don't like toast at all? Okay. Um, let's, let's try another one. How about, how many of you like coffee? Raise your hand if you're a coffee person. Raise your hand if you're a tea person. Raise your hand if you're a Diet Coke person. Yeah, there's diversity, right? How about another one? How many of you like cakes? How many of you like cake? How many of you like pie? I can do one on both. How many of you like ice cream? One more. Some of you aren't voting. If you're a dog person, stand up. If you're a dog person, stand up. Come on. If you're a dog person, stand up. Okay. I got it. Okay. You're a dog person. Okay, have a seat. If you're a cat person... Just sit down and hush up. We don't want to hear from you. <laughs> Sorry. Do you understand how much we focus on preferences? Do you understand how much we get caught in this whole process of people like me? I, had a, I went to a marriage seminar many, many years ago, and I was being a part of the program and part of the process. I was singing at it and being a part of it, and a guy stood up and said this, and when he said this, I've never forgotten it. He says, if you marry someone exactly like you, one of the two of you is unnecessary. <laughs> Instead of saying, why aren't they like me, why don't you ask, what do they bring to the mix? What do they bring to what God would have us to do? Here's the second one. Here's the second thing we learned from this. Not only did Jesus d d demonstrate how diversity could enhance unity, Jesus defined unity by truth. He said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word, Father, your word is truth. 
We try to achieve unity by dumbing down the requirements. We try to, to achieve unity by having the lowest common denominator. Well, you don't have to believe this and this and this. You just have to believe this one little thing and then you can be in. And the Lord did just the opposite of that. Jesus took a totally different approach. Uh, look at Matthew chapter 23, verses 27. He comes to the, the, the Pharisees, and what does he say? Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Boy, there's a Sunday morning sermon for you. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead bones and everything unclean. I mean... The everything unclean in the Greek literally means all the gook you don't want to talk about when somebody dies. He said, you guys consider yourself religious, but do you understand you are just like the worst of the worst on the inside and you've just whitewashed the outside? And you say, well, pastor, what about speaking the truth in love? Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15. You see, Jesus did speak the truth in love there. Is it loving if you have someone who thinks that they're earning their way to heaven to allow them to continue? Is it loving to let someone who is bought into a lie to live that lie? The most loving thing you can do is to say the truth to them. Truth creates boundaries. It defines Christianity in its pure, authentic form. Truth by its nature divides right from wrong. It divides seductive substitutes from the real authentic gift, the grace, the cross that Jesus Christ provided for us. But I, I will say this, Christians shouldn't look for a fight. Have you ever known a Christian that loved a good fight? It reminds me of Bill Bennett many years ago when he was pretty active in politics, to, told a story. He said two Irishmen came across two men and, and they were just coming along the path, and these two guys were just slugging out. I mean, they were just punching each other in the mouth, and it was a horrible fight. And the two Irishmen looked for a while, and they, they thought for a while. And then one of them piped up when there was a pause in the action. And he says, is this a private fight, or can anybody get involved? And that's the way Christians are a lot of times. Can we get involved? And the Lord says, no, 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 no. You don't look for a fight, but you don't walk away from, from it. Jesus said we're to be sanctified by the truth. Sanctified, literally, literally, agiadso, to be set apart, to be purified. There's no endeavor more important than the truth. We are to be marked as people of the truth. We are to be marked as people who take this book seriously, who take God's word seriously, who take his instructions seriously, who take his love letter seriously. In verse 11, if you went back earlier in the chapter, it says that we are to protect and to, to keep the flock safe. We're talking about that on Sunday nights with, a, with what we're talking about, with strange fire. It, it protect literally, tirio, means to conserve. It means to, to put a boundary around. And to keep safe, literally, philoso, uh, is, is to fight off the attack. You put the boundary, but if somebody comes within the boundary, you fight them back. That's the way we should be about God's word. When somebody says to me, oh, you know, there's all kinds of mistakes in the Bible... I get philosophical on them. I, I start saying, wait a second, I'm going to beat you back because this is God's word. And there are not all kinds of mistakes in it. It's the truth. Number three, first he demonstrated how diversity could enhance it. Then he defined unity by truth. And then number three, Jesus built unity on love. He gave us a picture of perfect love. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had always been in perfect unity. 
They'd always been as one. They had never had a crossword. They had never felt jealous. They, they had always endured, always loved, always promoted the other one. And he brings us in and he says, do you understand what perfect love looks like? Look at the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus showed us that unity is built on love. It's built on humility. It's built on caring about others. Even toward the end of his ministry, there was a time when the disciples began to argue about who was the greatest. And the Lord calls them in and he brings a child and he holds the child up and he says, unless you have this this kind of attitude, this love, this humility, this childlike faith, unless you come to this point and quit getting into this who's the greatest, you're not ever going to get it. Paul writes it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. For so many years we lived in Amarillo, Texas, and Kathy's parents lived in, in South Dakota where he was with American Sunday School Union, and, and he was doing missionary work, and we loved going to see them in the summer, and we would leave Amarillo, and we would drive 750 miles from Amarillo, Texas to South Dakota to see her parents. We had three children. The children were younger at that point, and we drove a couple of times during the day, and we quickly realized there must be a better plan. Because you would hardly get out of Amarillo when, when you would hear, Mom, he touched me. She's on my side. She's got my game. And so we began to leave at 5 o'clock at night, and we would drive. By the way, of the 750 miles, the good news is there was 40 miles of freeway. The rest of it was two-lane road through little towns. And we would leave at 5 o'clock at night. We would get off work. We would, we would pack everybody up, and we would, we would drive 750 miles, about 17 hours, get in the next day. And this is when this verse really became clear to me. Psalm 133.1. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. <laughs> and I wanted so desperately. You see, I didn't want to have to legislate unity for my kids I wanted it to be organic. I wanted it to come from within them. I wanted them to love their brothers and their sisters to the point that the three of them would learn what it meant to get along. And I think our Heavenly Father looks at us and He sees us on this journey and He wonders why we can't get along. The Lord's striving for unity through diversity and through truth and through love. So what do we learn about it? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and let's get a little practical information for us. We've already gotten a lot of practical stuff from this, but Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, an incredible church in many ways. Later we would find that they lost their first love. But he's writing to this church, and he's, and he's really done something wonderful for us. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, because it says here that we are to maintain. How can we ma maintain unity? If the Lord strove for it, if he was striving for it, how do we maintain it? Look at chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to do what? To live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort, now get this, to keep 
the unity. It doesn't say to build the unity, to, to devise the unity, to maintain, to keep the unity of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, through the bond of peace. Then look what he says. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. There is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism, there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And again, there's so much in these verses we could take forever. I just want to make three quick observations. Number one, remember what it costs. If you want to maintain the unity, you remember what it costs. We're to walk worthy. Live a life worthy of the calling. Do you understand that? I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. Do you remember I said that Jesus wasn't necessarily taking volunteers? He called the 12 disciples. And the truth is he's called every one of us. He has called us to be a part of the body. He has called us to be a part of the family. He's called us to be a part of the church. He's called us to be one. And we need to understand that. The word worthy there, oxios, means to bring up the other side of the beam, to, to hold up your side of the scale. It doesn't mean that we have to, to earn our salvation because we can't earn our salvation. What does it mean then? There should be a connection, a balance between what something costs and how we treat it. There ought to be some kind of understanding that if something costs something, that it ought to be treated in a certain way. When I turned 16, uh, I had a birthday, and my dad gave me a card, and there was a, 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 some money in it because he knew that I wanted a car, and, and there was some money, and it was not enough for a car. It wasn't enough for insurance. It was enough for gas, but gas was 19 cents a gallon, so it wasn't a whole lot of money. When my cousin Stephen turned 16, he got a brand-new Mustang, biggest engine you could find. I mean, whoa, it was a car. Ah, ah. Two months later, Stephen had totaled the car. He'd flipped it, rolled it, was not hurt badly. His dad got him a T-Bird. It was a little bit bigger. And then he totaled that. Over the next five years, Stephen would trash about four or five different cars. Five years later, I sold my car that I bought for $45. 63 Ford Falcon. I bought that 63 Ford Falcon for $45, and four or five years later, I sold it for $250. I used to start my dad's car in the wintertime when his Chrysler wouldn't start. I would jump start his car. What's the difference? I knew how much it cost me to have to earn the money. I had to pay $450 for the liability insurance for a $45 car. I knew what it cost me. And my cousin Stephen didn't. He didn't understand the cost. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Now look at this last line. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Jesus Christ went to the cross and died on the cross for all of our sins, including our desire as sheep to go our own way. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone our own way. We've turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the Lord, it cost Jesus Christ everything. God offers us the chance to experience the same type of unity that he had 
the Father, Son, and Trinity, and the Holy Spirit. How dare we treat that lightly? Remember what it costs. Number two, put others first. When we as believers begin to feud, we turn our attention away from, from uh, when we begin to feud, we begin to turn our attention on uh, ourself and away from others. And Paul uses three words to describe this. First one is humility. It's one without arrogance. Why do we become arrogant? God graciously offered us uh, love and, and truth and faith and hope through his son and his word. Why are we arrogant? Why would we not be humble? Because somehow that grace becomes so ingrained that we think somehow that we deserved it, that we earned it. Do you understand, except for the grace of God, you could be on death row. Except for the grace of God, you could be in prison today. Except for the grace of God, you could be an alcoholic. Except for the grace of God, you could be a drug addict. Except for the grace of God, your life could be something totally different from what it is. second word he uses is gentle. It means to be considerate. It, it means to be considerate. I was flying not long ago, and Bruce and Cindy, they fly more than I do, and they understand this. You get in the seat, and you have the guy in front of you. As soon as they can, boom, they put the seat back. You know, and you can see them. It's not back far enough, and so they press it one more time, and they, they bounce. The old nature says, put your knee up. And my wife says, no, 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 no. She plays Holy Spirit. You can't do that. Don't you hate that? I mean, if they were just a little more considerate, to be considerate. The third word he uses is patience. Patience. Reluctant to avenge wrongs. Patience just doesn't mean that you just go sit in, in a doctor's office waiting. It says reluctant to avenge wrongs. When we focus on ourselves, we lose the privilege of being Christ's ambassadors, serving one another. Philippians 2, 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than ourselves. Do you understand how hard that is, though, to consider others better? Do you understand how tough it is to be humble? I mean, it, it really is, if you, if you talk and you, you tell somebody you're humble, you're not. If you think you're humble, you're not. If you think about it at all, you're probably not. I, did you enjoy the Olympics, the Winter Olympics that just got over? I, I noticed there was, somebody was doing an interview with one of these trick ski deals, you know, and I don't know, you know, it's the X Games and all this, and they go up and they do these flips and that, and, you know, three times around and four times over, and they were coming back on their feet, which I think is just marvelous, except that one of the guys didn't quite do it, and he landed wrong, and the skis went flying, and he didn't break anything, and he was, he was going through this, and they were doing it super slow motion. He said, this is when I messed it up, and, and the skis began to come loose, and I realized I wasn't going to get down, and he said, what went through your mind? And he says, you know, that I probably can't say on television what went through my mind, because this was not going to be pretty. And he ended the interview saying, it takes a lot of practice to be able to perform that stunt. And I'm telling you, humility takes a lot of practice to be able to do that. Because the first time that you do it, you think, oh, that doesn't seem natural. And then you have to do it over and over. And every time that you're tempted to have your way, you have to say, no, Lord, let me think of the other person first. Here's a third thing. Not only are we supposed to remember what it costs and put others first, 
but we're to love Christ passionately. It says to bear with one another in love. To bear with one another in love. Literally hold him up. Put up with his faults, his idiosyncrasies. Put up with those things that annoy the daylights out of you, knowing we have plenty of our own. It's to, to, to bear with one another. And that's certainly what Christ has done with us. The reason that we can learn to get along with other people is because Christ has from the very beginning put up with us. There are so many things that I think of that when I get to heaven, I, I, I just, you know, when I see him face to face, I'm going to say, Lord, I'm so sorry about all those times. And I really believe with all of my heart he's going to say, what times? Because he's, as far as the east is from the west, the depths of the sea, he's taken our sin and put it away. Colossians 3.14 says, and over all these things, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. We're to keep the unity of the Spirit. We don't have to create it. God's already done it. Before creation, and I want to say it again, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were in perfect love. Totally committed. And all the Lord wants us to do is to, to step in to see what He's already done. Let me close with this. Maybe it will help you. Maybe it won't. Last year we went on, we went on the uh, Israel trip. We had a Greek part of that, and we went to Greece. We saw Ephesus, and we saw Corinth. It was phenomenal. We loved it. And as we were going to some of the Greek islands so we could go see the Isle of Patmos and, and other reasons, we took a, a, a three-day Greek cruise. It's tough suffering for Jesus sometimes, but you have to do it, you know. It, it was a wonderful time. And we were on this Greek cruise, and you had some time as they were going from one island to the other. And so they had some different activities that you could have. And it's kind of interesting being with a church group because they were going to do some Greek dancing. You know, I'm a pastor, and people were going to look at me. What they don't understand, I, I have an aversion to dancing, but it's not because I'm a pastor. It's because I don't know how to dance. And when people try to show me, they say, you really shouldn't try that. <laughs> My feet don't work right. Whatever. I mean, I, I can strum a guitar, but I can't for some reason. So they were doing this Greek dancing. But what I noticed is this. She didn't get up and say, just do whatever you want to. She got up and she said, you do this with your foot, and then you do this with your foot, and you do, do this, and you, you, it was a line, and you had your arm on this one, and, and you do it to this rhythm. No, don't do it that way. And she would... She got us into doing what she was doing. And after three or four steps, I quickly realized that I was stepping on people's feet that weren't even next to me. <laughs> so I stood back and watched, and I watched, and they had a wonderful time. And here's the point. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have been in a dance. And they hold out their arms and say, why don't you come and do this with us? And once you find the unity of what it means to be stepping and keeping in step with the Spirit. Literally what it says. That's what it says. To keep in step with the Spirit. And, and the Lord says, and some of you thinking, all you can think is, oh, he just used an illustration with dancing and God. David danced before the Lord and the Lord took pleasure in it. And I believe the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in their dance and in their invitation, want to show us what it means to love. Let's bow for prayer.
What an amazing God you are, Father. You didn't just come to demonstrate unity. You came to give us unity. You didn't just come to talk about unity. You came to change the way we live. To, to teach us that when someone is different, that's not bad. That makes us stronger. To teach us that, that love will build a strength that we can't imagine. To teach us that truth is the basis of all unity. That to teach us, Father, those things that will change us forever. And we get so bound up and everything but that. So we may we focus, Father, first of all on who Jesus Christ is. He's the author and the finisher, the completer of our faith. He is the one who went to Calvary for us. He's the one who died in our place. He's the one who paid what we could not pay. He is the one who earned for us salvation. He became sin for us who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Father, may we understand that first of all. And then may we understand what it looks like and what it means and some of the ramifications of what could happen when we begin to keep in step with you. To demonstrate love. To demonstrate that we're one in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a, a, a closing song. It's one of my favorites. You may or may not know it. It's called Make Us One. If you have a spiritual need, you can come and sit on one of these chairs. And the deacons, we already have Fred and Radine down here. If you have a spiritual need, come and pray. They'd love to pray with you as we close, as we sing this song. If you need to, to make that decision for Jesus Christ, do it today as we sing.